I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Double Elvis. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that was as uncertain as a stray bullet. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Four would be the number of English rockers he scared off with his 22 caliber pistol while casually taking target practice during a photo shoot. Another eight would be the number of tracks on the Dead's third album he would have absolutely no input on. His only appearance on the record came from live performances that were added to the mix. Eight more would be the number the Dead's ranks would swell to, leaving Pigpen even more lost in the shuffle of influence. Another three would be the number of rock stars who would be assaulted before the dead were scheduled to take the stage at a free concert in 1969, shaking the nerves of the group who were now terrified as to what awaited them. And four would be the number of years Pigpen had left to live when the concert came to its sinister and infamous conclusion, all totaling 27. On this, our sixth episode of season five, 22 caliber photo shoots, assault, Shaken nerves, sinister conclusions, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is the 27 Club.
You gotta squeeze us in, Herb. The Grateful Dead's manager, Rock Scully, was glued to a payphone. He looked back at the entirety of the band standing behind him. He rubbed his eyes and pleaded into the receiver. Look, we have shows to promote, man. It's, it's gonna look strange. It was gonna look strange because the dead were no longer a band of six. Tom Constantin, the keyboard player who filled in during Ron Pigpen McKernan's absence, was staying on as a full-time member, even though Pigpen was back in the fold. The band needed new promotional shots as soon as possible to reflect the change. The old photos weren't going to cut it. Photographer Herb Green had shot every iteration of the band to that point. Herb was the guy to see in San Francisco when your band needed some killer shots. That's why the four English chaps were currently standing in Herb's studio. It was their first tour of the States, and Herb was their first stop in the city by the bay. Herb told Rock to come by. He'd try to fit them in. Maybe he would introduce the dead to this new group from across the pond, bridge the continental gap, have a bit of a party, and make a day of it. Herb then hung up the phone and returned to his subjects. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Bonham, and John Paul Jones, Led Zeppelin. The dress of England's newest hitmakers was pristine. Robert Plant's golden locks bounced over a button-down shirt and delicate floral undershirt. Jimmy Page was classically cool in a tan peacoat. Bonham wore a black leather jacket over a snug patterned sweater. And John Paul Jones dressed in a plain but elegant crew neck and tight slacks. All clean shaven, save for a tidy mustache on Bonzo's upper lip. The four not only looked the part, they played the part. And they were months away from becoming one of the biggest bands in the world and international sex symbols to boot. That was an interdimensional parallel to the Grateful Dead, who, just moments later, were falling in through the door of Herb's studio. They were led by a frantic rock scully. Tagging closely behind was Jerry Garcia, wearing a poncho and sporting a magnificently large bushy beard. Mickey Hard in a fur-skin cap and enormous mustache, Phil Lesh with raging sideburns and a denim jacket, Bill Kurtzman wearing a plain jacket and striped shirt, looking like he had just finished a shift driving a cab. A perpetually dazed Bob Weir, his wild ponytail threatening to unleash itself on the room. Tom Constantin with carefully parted hair, a handlebar mustache, and a cane. And of course, Pigpen. In this crew of mismatched parts, Pigpen was perhaps the most outlandish of them all. He wore a dark jacket, bearing an enormous pattern of flowers and ornate vines on its back panel. Thick black goatee. His beaten-in leather cowboy hat was marked with sweat stains and looked like it had been run over by several 18-wheelers. He also carried something on his waist, a 22 caliber pistol. As Rock made a beeline for Herb, the dead stood impatiently waiting to get the session started. Zeppelin didn't even know what to make of the guys standing next to them. Bloody Americans, honestly, it was hard to focus on anything else in the room besides this cowboy who was currently slinging his 22 around and pointing at the ceiling. Pigpen leaned back toward Jerry Garcia, and then he pointed to a couple of objects at the far end of the studio and stared down the barrel, squinted one eye, and then released a few rounds of ammunition into the ceiling, saying to Jerry, fuck, missed it. Pigpen laughed as did the rest of the dead. Led Zeppelin were not laughing. These Yanks seemed downright maniacal. Was this what the West was really like? Did cowboys roam the streets and shoot at ceilings? Did everyone have a gun? 
Herb Green's newest clients couldn't get out the door fast enough, which meant that the dead were ready for their close-up. The band positioned themselves in front of the camera, all seven of them. All seven. That was still taking a little of getting used to. They seemed to be acquiring new members at a steady rate. First Mickey, now Tom. And if they kept expanding, they'd need a caravan to transport them to shows. Pigpen's grasp on the whole situation was about as loose as he had been with his 22. The photo session was smack dab in the middle of the Dead's recording sessions for what would become their third studio album, Oxamoxoa. Pig, who had been kicked back to Congo's during live sets, wasn't even involved in the recording process yet. In fact, by the time the Dead completed the studio sessions, Tom's takes on keyboard had become the definitive ones. On the album's back cover, Pigpen was listed last in the musician credits, and his credit didn't even indicate he was a musician. It simply read, Ron McKernan, Pigpen. He wouldn't have even been on the album at all if Jerry and Phil hadn't decided to mix in live tracks with the studio tracks. The strange evolution of the Grateful Dead's music walked hand in hand with the group's shifting dynamics. They weren't just experimenting with sounds and psychedelics anymore. The music had become beyond complex and difficult. The pressures to continually transform, the pressure to chase a sound, the pressure to push into the outer reaches of an auditory solar system were all beginning to take a toll on the Grateful Dead. They huffed nitrous oxide when they sat over the mixing board, a steady supply of momentary lapses of concentration to get through the album. The music they heard coming from the monitors was intricate and impossibly elaborate, and it was starting to draw a hard line in the way the Dead performed live. The Grateful Dead had survived a split as a band, but their live act had not. The beginning of their shows were now a deep exploration of the outer rim of the universe, jazzy, acid-soaked fits of improv over complex structures. And they would then downshift into the folk-influenced ballads and old, weird Americana that Jerry and Robert Hunter were obsessed with. At this point, Pigpen would finally emerge from where he'd been tucked away off to the side of the stage leaving the Congos behind to take center stage and deliver a hard driving set of R&B. This was where Pigpen could shine. He was in his element, dancing, hollering, and enticing the audience to find someone to take home with him. And it worked. The audience would give the energy back to Pigpen, feeding into his act, creating a call and response of pure ecstasy that Pigpen would digest in return. It was a perfect cyclical movement of experience and understanding that this was a really good time and there was no other place you needed to be but right here, right now. Pigpen's stage presence was magnifying. It was electrifying. It was carnal. But that wasn't where the dead were headed. They all knew it. Jerry had insisted for a while that Pigpen needed his time center stage. Hell, just look at the back cover of Oxamoxoa. Ron McKernan may not be listed as a musician, but he's pictured at the very center of the Grateful Dead family, lounging on the lawn, surrounded by other band members, good friends of the band, and children, including a five-year-old girl that for a time was alleged to be Courtney Love. Despite Love herself claiming it was her in the photo, it was later proven to be Bill's daughter, who was the same age. Regardless, it would make sense that Courtney Love would be there in the picture, inheriting the don't-give-a-fuck attitude that is steaming off of Pigpen in that classic photograph. Pigpen was the best showman of the lot, and when he was singing Midnight Hour or Turn On Your Love Light, something happened in the audience. Something happened to the audience. Something that nobody else in the band could elicit. Just look at how everything revolves around him in that portrait. 
He didn't need to have an instrument beside his name. He was Pigpen, at the center of the Grateful Dead, and he held it all together. And besides, Pigpen could close a show like a motherfucker. But the cracks were starting to show, even on songs Pigpen liked to perform. Extended jams on Love Light would inevitably cause Pigpen to become detached, disassociated, disinterested. He would sing his verses and then vamp on something basic while the rest of the Grateful Dead took off in their spaceship. And that's when it was time to sip Thunderbird and bide the time until the song came to a close. And only then would Pigpen finally hop back in and give an honest effort. And that shit wasn't working for Jerry. That shit wasn't working for the dead. Because where they were going wasn't anywhere remotely close to where they had been. And for Pigpen, that meant trouble ahead. The sun spilled on the pig pen's face. He looked over at his girl, V, who was still asleep, and smiled. V wasn't like the girls on the road or the girls who came before. V was special. What they had together was special. Where they were was special. It was 1969, and they were at Mickey Hart's ranch in Novato, California, some 30 miles away from the madness of the hate. And pig pen, well, Pigpen was happy. Pig pulled himself out of bed, fetched a bottle, and went for a smoke on the porch. The mid-morning sun filled the entire scene with a warm yellow glow. Large, ancient trees, dogs running, the sound of hens clucking, and the extended Grateful Dead family's children playing nearby. It was serene, and Pigpen strapped on his pistol. He wasn't playing at being a cowboy anymore. Hell, he was a cowboy. And so were the rest of the dead. The band wasn't just dabbling in country western music. They were riding horses, taking target practice on the range, and raising chickens. Mickey leased the firm just a few months before as an attempt to escape the insanity that was San Francisco. And an escape is what they all needed. Pig and V joined Mickey first, and then one by one the rest of the band made their way out. Friends, family, and other musicians rotated on and off the property. Of course, there were also various dealers providing any chemical the group desired, and even some Hell's Angels made the journey up to check out Mickey's farm. The Angels may have dressed the same as Pig, but they weren't necessarily his vibe. Regardless of the constant guests and hangers-on, the 14-acre piece of land became a respite, a chance for the dead to slow down. They hadn't been watching their speed at all, and the experimentation in all aspects of the group's life was putting them on a fast track to a burnout. The drugs, the music, the living arrangements, it was all starting to catch up. On Mickey's farm, after long days of firing rifles and riding horses, the Grateful Dead would play music. Once again, the sound was taking a new direction. And this new direction was, in no small part, another reaction to what was going on at the time. The complexities of psychedelia had worn out their welcome, walking hand in hand with the downward spiral of the end of the 1960s. The decade began with such hopefulness, and it was punctuated by tragedy. Martin Luther King, shot dead. Bobby Kennedy, gunned down just months later. Everyone feeling like they're fixing to die. Hanoi, Watts, Chicago, Detroit. 
and the malaise of the 60s left the country feeling hungover, just like the dead felt with their music. That's what the new direction was all about. Bob Dylan, the band, the birds, Buffalo Springfield, they were all doing it, reaching back. That old, weird America. The roots, the folkways, the stuff the dead had vibed on in their earliest days. Jerry, Bob, and Phil began to write new tunes with Robert Hunter's lyrics. Robert was quickly becoming the eighth member of the group. They did the old style their peers were championing in a new way, though putting the Grateful Dead stamp on it, something close to what country rock singer Graham Parsons would describe as cosmic American music. Another cosmic cowboy, Stephen Stills, had become a frequent visitor to Mickey's farm. The Dead thought Crosby, Stills, and Nash had some far-out vibrations. Influenced by their friends group, Jerry, Bob, and Phil began to experiment with vocal harmonies, a style that would become a new hallmark of the Dead sound. But once again, this new way left little room for Pigpen. Pig was still invisible for a majority of the Dead shows. Night after night, he'd hang back, beating his congas and pounding beers during the jazzed-up songs of Oxamoxoa. And when he did finally step to the keys and mic to take lead vocals on his signature tunes, he'd turn his organ down during the extended jams. Night after night, Pigpen refused to take the musical trip with the rest of the Grateful Dead, just as he had refused those other mind-altering trips. And night after night, Jerry Garcia shot Pigpen looks on stage, the ones that simultaneously tried to keep him honest and also urge him on. The rest of the members of the dead knew something was amiss, but Pigpen was hard to read. Always positive, always open. It's not like his drinking habits were some great insight into his inner emotional state. Drinking was what it had always been, an everyday, all-day occupation. Pigpen didn't complain about his place in the band, on stage or on an album. He simply showed up and did what was asked of him, no matter how minimal the contribution. The band had nothing but love for their brother. They stuffed Pigpen songs into every set and found new songs that could become future Pigpen standards like Otis Redding's Hard to Handle and The Rascals' Good Lovin'. The band didn't necessarily want to move in an R&B direction. It was all done in more of an effort to keep Pigpen motivated and engaged. When Pigpen was engaged, he was a force of nature. So was his half-biker, half-cowboy image. Pigpen's face graced the first piece of merchandise the dead ever made, a t-shirt with the text Pigpen under his silhouetted likeness. A Pigpen lookalike contest was currently being used to promote their new album, an album Pigpen hadn't even worked on. Pigpen didn't want the fame, he didn't want the notoriety, he didn't even really care about success. He just wanted to play the blues with his friends. And those thoughts ran through Pigpen's head as he listened to Jerry ramble on to Rolling Stone writer Michael Lydon about Acid Rock, The Pranksters, and Ken Kesey. Rolling Stone labeled Jerry the source of the dead's magic, Phil his other half, and said that Pig was not primarily a musician, as if he was being given a chance to be. But still, despite that backhanded compliment, or whatever it was, there was Pig's face, the non-musician, the odd man out, on the fucking cover of Rolling Stone magazine with his brothers. The Grateful Dead weren't reaching a peak. They weren't being eclipsed by other groups. They weren't fading into obscurity. The Grateful Dead had staying power, hence the Rolling Stone cover, and their popularity was only growing. That popularity landed them a spot in the Woodstock lineup in the summer of 1969. 
It was a clear indicator that the movement they had helped spark on the West Coast was a national, if not global, phenomenon. But just because the dead were on the fast track to enduring fame didn't mean that cracks weren't starting to appear. Not just in the band's organization, the whole damn movement. Woodstock may have projected the ideals of peace, love, and understanding, but they were momentary, if they were real at all. And as the decade drew to a close, something dark waited in the wings for that wide-eyed hopefulness. Another concert was waiting, one that would expose the supposed bliss of Woodstock as nothing more than a fantasy, a dream. I would say total bunk. There was no peace, no love. There was just the seedy underbelly, the thing that had always been there, and the thing that always would. The devil would have his due. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pigpen sat in the back of the park bus, white-knuckling a bottle of Southern Comfort. He slowly brought the bottle to his mouth with a shaky hand. Things hadn't gone as planned. Quite the opposite, really. The free concert was supposed to be a companion piece to Woodstock, but things went wrong from the jump. The concert was originally slated for the picturesque Golden Gate Park, but the San Francisco City Council had enough of the whole hippie experience and the venue changed last minute to this dusty spit of land. Mickey Hart's farm had been considered as an option at one point. Pigpen would have preferred Mickey's farm, but here they were at Altamont Speedway. Pig took another pull of SoCo. It wasn't taking the edge off as he had hoped. He should have known that the edge would be there for a damn long time the minute he saw the Hells Angels. The vibrations were negative from the second the Grateful Dead arrived, forced to wait around for hours while a helicopter ferried musicians over to the venue. Just like Woodstock, the concert site was woefully underprepared for the amount of people who would arrive, and the place became nearly inaccessible by car. The place was also slowly becoming a war zone. Jefferson Airplane's set went sideways when guitarist Marty Ballin got himself knocked out by a Hell's Angel. Stephen Stills was stabbed in the leg by another Hell's Angel who was off his rocker on amphetamines and beer. Mick Jagger had been punched in the face by a fan when the Rolling Stones arrived via helicopter. And now, the Grateful Dead were being told to stay in their truck until they took the stage. I'm not fucking going out there, man. Jerry repeated his new mantra at the front of the truck they had been told to wait in. His wife, Mountain Girl, tried to settle him down and hoped some grass would do the trick. It didn't. Pigpen peered out of the truck window at the chaos that was taking place. He watched as a few angels roughed up a naked man just a few dozen yards away. Pigpen shook his head. Rock Scully had been obsessed with the idea of the dead sharing a stage with the stones. The concept of the free show to give back to the fans was tried and true in the dead's world. But watching the chaos unfold, Pigpen had to ask himself, was it all worth it? Which one of the dead would be the next victim of the concert's madness? That was the question on everyone's mind. It was on Pigpen's mind too. But he also wondered how the fuck he even got there in the first place. Just a few months ago, things had been looking up. The Grateful Dead had wrapped up their contract with Warner Brothers. Their three album deal had come to an end and so had the Dead's run with Psychedelia. That was a net positive for Pig, who didn't fit in with the music anyhow. The tunes they had been crafting up at Mickey's farm were a start, but they needed to take them on the road and test them out. That's just what they did. Robert Hunter penned lyrics like Uncle John's Band, Dire Wolf, and Cumberland Blues, and the group had brought the songs to life in sets throughout the year. The new songs described lost souls in old American towns, cold winters way up north, and Appalachian traditions. They also contained open commentary on the summer of love and its fallout and what maybe it had all really meant. It wasn't just a new direction. It was a hard reset. Another unrecorded song debuted in 1969 was 
Easy Wind, a song influenced chiefly by the music and legend of Delta Blues man Robert Johnson. A song about a hard-drinking highwayman who just keeps showing up to work day after day, chipping away at the road, knowing it'll someday bring someone in the right direction. A song about desperation and about knowing that the end is near, but pushing forward nonetheless. Words that Robert Hunter had written with Pigpen in mind. And though Robert may have only associated the song with Pigpen because of its style and performance, the lyrics were starting to fit in a most appropriate way. Pigpen had been hammering away at the blues his whole life and his whole career with the Grateful Dead. He kept his head down, did what was asked of him, and always kept a bottle handy during downtime. That fact wasn't lost on the rest of the band. That's why it made sense to kick around the idea of Pigpen cutting a solo album. Pig hit the studio with Jerry, Bob, and some session musicians. They recorded some old country songs, but the full project never came to fruition. The Dead's first ever recording contract with Warner Brothers and Pigpen's solo album recording session served as a glorified scouting session to check out other companies' facilities. The Pigpen solo album faded into obscurity and legend as a what-could-have-been moment in rock and roll. And while Pigpen settled into his new role at the bottom of the Dead's hierarchy, he began to spend more time on his own. It was already like pulling teeth to get Pigpen out of his hotel room on a typical day, but now he wouldn't even enjoy off days with the band. He often chose to stay in his room, drink, and maybe play a little acoustic guitar. The rest of the group, the managers and the roadies, had to try desperately to convince Pigpen to emerge from his cave. And that's exactly where he was now, seated in the back of the bus, by himself, as the alarming anarchy of Altamont was unfolding around their little bubble. It was time to make a decision on whether they would play or not. It was an easy one. Every single member of the dead was fucking out. They booked it for the chopper pad, crammed into the cabin, and took off. While the dead were airborne, the Rolling Stones took the stage, and the night descended further and further into chaos. The Hell's Angels had become infuriated with a long day of smashing saucer-eyed concertgoers, and the saucer-eyed concertgoers were sick of the Hell's Angels. One fan rushed the stage with a pistol in the middle of the Rolling Stones' set, and the Hell's Angels stabbed him to death on the spot. Another man drowned in a nearby irrigation ditch. Two more were run over at their campsite. Someone tried to jump off a 40-foot overpass after taking too much of whatever he was taking and shattered his pelvis. And there were fights everywhere. Traffic to the venue was backed up for 20 miles. There were 100 bathrooms for 300,000 people. And there was speed, cocaine, LSD, and rivers of alcohol everywhere you looked. The Grateful Dead had evacuated just in time to miss the worst of it. But they were scheduled to play another show that evening. And they backed out of that one, too. The scene at Altamont had shaken them, and it would soon shake the world. 1969 had become the end of something hopeful and the beginning of something sinister. Rosemary LaBianca sat on a sofa in the living room of her Los Angeles home. She couldn't stop reading the newspaper article that was laid out on the coffee table in front of her. It hurt to read it and reread it, but she couldn't look away. 
Things have been escalating the last few years in her city, but this? A five-person massacre at the home of the Hollywood elite? What the hell? Was nobody safe anymore? For the rest of the day, she couldn't shake the anxiety the article had made her feel. But she slept hard that night. So hard that she didn't wake up to the sound of an alarm or the sound of birds chirping outside her bedroom window. Instead, she was awoken when she was violently dragged out of bed at gunpoint by a man with shaggy hair and a bushy beard, who then tossed her onto her living room floor. Her husband, Lino, who had fallen asleep on the sofa, had his hands tied and was also being held at gunpoint by another man with a bushy beard and long hair. Only this one was slightly shorter. What are you doing, Rosemary pleaded. Take whatever you want, please, just, just don't hurt us. The two men looked at each other and grinned. They covered the couple's heads with pillowcases and tied them off with the power cords from some nearby lamps. They then bound Rosemary's hands like her husband's. She heard the men whisper to each other, footsteps, the back door opened and closed, silence. Rosemary could tell there was one man left in the room. He began to pace, and she began to hyperventilate. What do you want from us? But before anyone could answer, the door opened again, and Rosemary heard a half dozen footsteps, then a barked order to throw Rosemary back into the bedroom. As she was dragged down the hall, she heard the sound of a blade unsheathed and then the sound of metal through flesh. She imagined the worst, the thought of her husband lying in a pool of his own blood. Her escorts tossed her onto the floor of her bedroom. She wouldn't let Lino die, not without a fight. Rosemary stood up, pushed her assailants with as much violent force as she could muster, and then began to swing the lantern around her neck. They were stunned and backed away. Then another terrible silence and more terrible footsteps. A sudden piercing pain, then darkness. When the police arrived the next day, they found the bodies of Rosemary and Lino LaBianca mutilated in their house. The words rise and death to pigs have been painted on the wall in blood. Helter Skelter was smeared in the same red stain across the fridge. Months later, Charles Manson and members of his so-called family were arrested. They were charged not only with the murder of the LaBiancas, but with the infamous massacre at the home of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, the one Rosemary had read about in the paper. Much like the Grateful Dead and like many social groups during that time, Charles Manson had organized communal living to pursue a new means of life outside of society, free, liberated. But unlike the Grateful Dead, Charles Manson's motives were not pure. He had studied theology, psychology, and culture, and took advantage of the idealism of the 60s to manipulate wide-eyed youth into joining his fucked up family. He indoctrinated them, fed them lies, and brainwashed them. Manson twisted the counterculture values of the time to suit his own needs. It was an extreme manifestation of the hate's flood of young kids looking to be absorbed into the scene, of the mess at Altamont, of the continued commodification and marketing of the hippies in rock and roll. It was horrifying, and something had to give. And as the 1960s gave way to the 1970s, the country was in need of a hard reset. And so were the Grateful Dead. The dead needed to get off the merry-go-round, strip away all the unnecessary elements of their sound and style. Pigpen was on board for all that. He was hopeful that they'd return from their intergalactic LSD trip and come back to Earth, allowing them to catch up while they caught their breath. The Grateful Dead weren't slowing down. They were simply changing their perspective. 
Pigpen, unfortunately, would never catch up. Altamont ended in chaos, and the calendar flipped from December 1969 to January 1970. And it was all there on the final track of the record released in December by the band The Headline that fateful day at Altamont. The feeling in the air, the rejection of nostalgia, the new cynicism. It all stared the world directly in the face. The 60s, like Pigpen, for all their vigor and misplaced effort, were ultimately unsuccessful. Everything would become abundantly clear. And just like the man said, you can't always get what you want. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.